like I mentioned, I've been an executive officer in a company. I've been, you know, responsible for hiring and firing for 20 years and fairly senior in this organization, right? I report to the CEO of the world's most prestigious, renowned, influential leadership development firm. And about a year ago, Wally, I came to understand that I'd done a misservice, a disservice to this company, to our shareholders, to our clients for 20 years by always hiring people who I thought were smart, but were just not smarter than me. And I didn't want them to eclipse me. I was so insecure and I was so sort of vapid around my own confidence level that I would hire people, but not people who I thought would eclipse me because I thought my job was to be the smartest person in the room. As the chief marketing officer, I needed to be the best read, the best prepared, the most creative, the genius in the room. And in fact, that is completely the opposite. My job going forward needs to be hiring people who are palpably, noticeably smarter than me and their areas of expertise. Welcome to Men of Abundance, the podcast for those looking to level up their lives by hanging out with some of the greatest leaders and established professionals in our community, living a life of integrity, honor, and the abundance mentality. Prepare to pay it forward with your host, former army medic turned lifestyle entrepreneur, Wally Carmichael. What is going on, Men of Abundance? I am Wally Carmichael, your founder and host of the Men of Abundance podcast, the Pay It Forward community, proving to you that you can, in fact, in fact, you have a responsibility to live a life of abundance in family, faith, finances, and fitness, as long as you have the capacity and the ability to do so. And the more you listen to these conversations, the more you listen to these conversations, the better off you will be because you will start developing the abundance mindset from all of these amazing abundant leaders, everyone living a life of abundance in their own right, proving to you that they too have major kick in the gut moments that they have overcome. And that is multiple kick in the gut moments. We can only share one, maybe two with each conversation. And then we share how they got through that. What are they doing with that information? How are they paying it forward? to the community, and in some cases, the world with that information. So yes, you have kick in the gut moments, no doubt about it. But what do you do with that information when you go past it as you go along the journey? That's what's important about living a life of abundance. And people have asked me, and I don't say it enough on this show, what does living a life of abundance mean to me? What does being a man of abundance mean to me? Well, to me, success is individual. That's what you do for yourself and your family, personal self-success. I was successful in high school when I won the race in track. I was a very, very fast, short, little, long, blonde-haired white boy who could just run. And I ran very short distances, very fast. I wasn't great at hurdles, although I liked doing hurdles, but I was short. But I had a lot of success in those environments. And that success added to the team points. Okay, but they were personal successes that I was doing for myself and for the team. So it starts kind of getting into the abundance mindset. It starts kind of getting into abundance in action. But to take success to abundance means you take the abilities that you have and the knowledge that you have and the resources that you have and you pay it forward to others to bring them along, to lift them up. 
We're not giving handouts. We're giving hand ups. We're helping people reach the level of success that they can with their, with what they have. And we're doing that with the resources that we have. So that's the difference to me between success and abundance. Now, today's conversation, we are talking about leadership, which is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart for many reasons, one of which, having been in the military and the Army specifically for 25 years, and my oldest boy being in the Army and my middle son being in the Navy, leadership is just extremely important to me. And I always believed that at least in the Army, we put people in leadership positions way before they were ready for it. But what many people do when they're put into a leadership position is they step up to the occasion. I have seen people step up to the occasion when they're put in leadership positions and done the right way as long as they have good mentors and leaders. But I've also seen leaders that have, let's say they just got themselves in a little bit of trouble, regardless of what the situation was, a DUI, adultery, um, theft out of the PX, believe it or not. It's crazy what happens when people do certain things and they get demoted. I one time once saw an E7, a sergeant first class in the army, get demoted to specialist, an E4. That is a huge demotion and it was because of adultery. That person actually ended up acting like a private like the lowest rank on the totem pole. No, he had no more respect for himself. Others didn't have respect for him. So leadership is a dynamic conversation. And it, it, there's so many dynamics to it when people say, well, what does a leader look like? What do I have to be to be a leader? Well, we're going to answer some of those questions in this conversation today. And I hope you get a lot out of it. And I hope, it's my hope that you pay it forward, you'd be abundant in your actions today, pay it forward, share men of abundance, share this conversation, share other conversations with others in your circles. Take a screenshot of your phone, take a screenshot of your, or take a picture of your computer or wherever it is that you're listening to this and share it and hashtag men of abundance, hashtag abundance, and then tag me and tag our guest. If you're connected with our guest, if you're not connected with the guest, then tag, get connected on social media and tag the guest and tag others so that they too can get in on these conversations and get out of them what you're getting out of them. They will thank you for it. I promise you for that. Now let's get into our conversation. Our feature guest today is Scott Miller. He's a 23 year old associate of Franklin Covey and serves as the executive vice president of thought leadership. Scott hosts multiple podcasts, including Franklin Covey's on leadership and great life, great career. Additionally, Scott is the author of the multi-week Amazon number one new release, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Scott authors a weekly leadership column in Inc.com and is a frequent contributor to podcasts and webinars. Previously, Scott worked in the Disney Development Company and grew up in Central Florida. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with his wife and three sons. Men of Abundance, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Scott Miller. Scott, welcome to Men of Abundance, brother. How are you doing? Wally, thank you for the platform. I'm doing well. Man, super excited we could finally get connected, man. Where are you at in the world? I'm in Salt Lake City today, where it is um, in the dead of winter, which is odd for October. Super cold. That is crazy, man. I'm originally from Arizona, so it's kind of up 
towards that way, if you will. I'm all the, all the way over in your old stomping grounds in Central Florida. I'm in Tampa, the Riverview area. Oh yeah, I, I um, was born, as you know, born and raised in Winter Park there, and lived most of my early life in the Orlando area. Yeah, nice man, nice. We're gonna be there this weekend. It's one of the reasons why we're here, so I could get down to Orlando as much as possible. I didn't want to live in Orlando; I wanted to stay closer out this way. But yeah, yeah we're enjoying wise. it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. Anyway, brother, I like to start out with an attitude of gratitude, man. What do you have to be grateful for today? Oh my gosh, I'm grateful for my my wife and my three boys, five, seven, and nine. Everybody appears to be healthy and happy and on a good track. I'm blessed for my job. I'm blessed for my 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 parish, the church I belong to up in Park City, Utah. I'm blessed for how my influence and brand is growing to tell people about how to be a better leader. And so I, I'm like just I'm drowning in gratitude. Man, that is absolutely amazing. And you know, as I say all the time, and I and I talk during pre-show quite a bit is you know that that gratitude comes long before any of the other things to be grateful for it's it's kind of a one of those circles you know it is very true i i I, my mother instilled in me the power of gratitude and you know being grateful for what you have doesn't mean you can't yearn for others right or or for more or different Mm -hmm. or better or but I, uh, uh, it's it's the difference between having a an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset. It's the difference between finding joy and happiness in the small things. It's probably the difference between being a jealous person and being a content person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm all about it. That's what one of the things I always say is, you know, be grateful for everything you have on your way to building more. And by more, I mean more relationships, stronger friendships. Uh, more, re- you know, and more resources, more connections, more opportunities. You know, I'm always, uh, it's, I, I take it like when I was in the military and the army, it was, we were constantly improving our foxhole and we should be doing that, but be grateful for what you have along the way. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. So man, you know, before we got started here, I talked a lot about, you know, you, what you're doing professionally. And here on Men of Abundance, we really like to get to know the man behind the abundance and get a little bit more personal. So if you would, how would you describe yourself, Scott? Well, uh, in words or sentences, I think uh, <laughs> both. I, I am, I'm at a turning point. You know, I've been in the corporate world as an officer for now 25 years. I, I'm a chief marketing officer and an executive vice president. I'm very grateful for all that the company has done to invest in me and with clients. And I'm at a, a transition point, a tipping point in my life where I'm kind of moving now on to really being a speaker and an author and sharing all my own messes and all my own challenges and mistakes. I think that I'm in an interesting reflection point on uh, the fact that I've been a generalist, not a specialist, for the last 30 years of my career, and that's really becoming valuable as I write and speak and blog and author things. So I'm, I'm 51, and I'm reinventing myself. I'm disrupting kind of the path I thought I would take, and I'm excited about that. Scared because you know I'm the provider of four people; they rely completely on me for all their financial needs, um, and as the provider of my house and such. So it's an exciting, but it's kind of scary journey ahead. Yeah, I can certainly see that. Um, I'm right there with you in age. And, uh, well, it's been a couple of years I've <laughs> transitioned my life and definitely not where I expected to be at this point in life, but uh, super excited to be here. Uh, so that's, you know, good on you that you're, you know, you're reaching that point and everything just seems to be working out for you. Now, along the way, 
You know, and we see people like that. We see, as you know, those of us, when I was younger, let's put it that way, I would see guys and I'd be like, man, that dude's got his stuff together. And then after getting to know them a little bit more, you realize they went through a lot of stuff to get to that point. So what I'd like to get into is this, what I refer to as a kick in the gut moment, because we all have them. And what we do with that information and the experience, ultimately, you know, many times determines where our, what our next step in life is. So if you would, share with us a kick in the gut moment and really make us feel that. Oh, I've got so many of them. I mean, I, honestly, I wrote this book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, and it's full of 30 major messes that I created or found myself in. So I have no problem being vulnerable. I'm trying to pick kind of a kick in the gut moment. I, I think it was this one. Like I mentioned, I've been an executive officer in a company. I've been, you know, responsible for hiring and firing for 20 years and fairly senior in this organization, right? I report to the CEO of the world's most prestigious, renowned, influential leadership development firm. And about a year ago, Wally, I came to understand that I'd done a misservice, a disservice to this company, to our shareholders, to our clients for 20 years by always hiring people who I thought were smart, but were just not smarter than me. And I didn't want them to eclipse me. I was so insecure and I was so sort of vapid around my own confidence level that I would hire people, but not people who I thought would eclipse me because I thought my job was to be the smartest person in the room. As the chief marketing officer, I needed to be the best read, the best prepared, the most creative, the genius in the room. And in fact, that is completely the opposite. My job going forward needs to be hiring people who are palpably, noticeably smarter than me and their areas of expertise. And my job is to build a culture to hope that they thrive. I intentionally hired people, I think subconsciously, not consciously, that would be a sociopath. I (laughs) uh, uh, unconsciously, but probably intentionally hired people who were very competent, but people who do not threaten me who didn't threaten my sense of security in the firm that was predicated on me, you know, being the smartest and me kind of saving the day and being the hero because that's how I found value. And I would encourage every leader out there to learn from my total mess, learn from my insecurity, your job in whatever role you're in, formal or informal, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, more educated, more secure, better morals, better values, better ethics, better, you know, more well-read, if you will. And it will only improve your own performance. Don't be the person that has to be the genius in the room. Be the genius maker of others. To quote my friend Liz Wiseman, who wrote, I think, the best leadership book of the decade, Multipliers. Hmm. I have heard of that book. I haven't picked it up myself yet. But, Phenomenal um, book. Yeah, I have to check that out for sure. I've heard it, heard about it a couple of times. That's a hell of a, uh, you know, um, real, yeah, confession <laughs> and realization. You know, and for, yeah, that's a very good point, actually, that it is a confession that a lot of guys, quite frankly, would never openly admit. And thanks for your vulner, vulnerability in that and bringing that up because, wow, that is, you know, I... We've always heard, you know, if you're the smartest man in the room, you're in the wrong room, um, <laughs> for sure. But I've never considered it as far as hiring practices because I've been in, on hiring boards as well. And, you know, we always have those conversations, but I've never considered it as far as a hiring practice, especially in something that's your skill, right? So, yeah, that's really, really interesting that you 
that what did that do for the organization once you made that realization how did that um affect the organization and people in it yeah, I think a couple of things. I'll tell you, I, I realized that, Wally, well, like 20 years too late, right? I mean, I realized that when I was 50 and I'm 51, and I haven't hired a lot of people since then because my role has changed. But I think it's – the more I talk about it and the more willing I am to confess that and be vulnerable about it, I think it shakes people into realizing that as a leader, your number one job is to be a talent magnet. Your job is to recruit and retain the best people in the industry, people who are smarter than you. And as the leader, you have to have the confidence to recognize that that they're going to be in meetings with you and they're going to know more about you know SEO or marketing automation or supply chain or Google Analytics. And there's going to be times when you know you're kind of you know a deer in the headlights, right? But that's okay. Your job isn't to know it all. Mm-hmm. Your job is to build a culture, to develop uh, the conditions where they choose to thrive and stay. Because we know people don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss. They quit their culture. And if you're hiring high-performing people who have genius capabilities, they don't want to be suffocated. They don't want to be held back. They want a boss that cares about them, that creates a strong culture, that clears the path. My job you know, is to cut through the red tape right, and let their genius come out and provide a risk-taking culture where they can, they can provide great risk. So I think the organization is better off by me evangelizing, don't make the same mistake I made, right? Is mm-hmm. your value, my value isn't being the most creative CMO. My job is finding the 30 most creative and competent people and putting them in a room and leading them. Now, at the end of the day, it may sound Pollyannish. As the chief marketing officer, my job was to own the results, right? I would never go to the board of directors or the CEO and sell out my team. I mean, I had to approve the end result. It was my job to deliver, but it doesn't mean that I had to be the smartest person in the room. This was a tipping point. In the marketing division at Franklin Covey, there used to be a phrase about the 40, amongst the 40 people who were here. It was kind of a joke, best idea wins, as long as it's Scott's. <laughs> and it used to be a bit of a joke, mm. but I think in that joke there was some truth, and I, and I regret making that joke be true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it takes me back to, you know, you, you remember the movies where they go out to, you know, do like the company outing and whatever, and or you're going to go golfing with the boss. But, hey, guess what? You're way better on the course than the, than the boss is, but not that day. You know, and it's it it translates directly, I think, because I worked a lot around doctors and the, for 25 years, doctors and nurses, and the whole the the whole dynamics of that industry changed over the years, and it all came from actually pilots. A pilot wrote a book about this, about the the pilot giving just as much power to the co-pilot, and the doctors giving just as much power to the nurses. Because if something's going wrong and the nurse was afraid to speak up, then the doctor was going to amputate the wrong leg, for instance, which happened a lot, uh, believe it or not. And it's because somebody in the room knew something was wrong but was afraid to speak up. And it, it really gets that deep, I think. Have you seen it to that extent? Wow, that's pretty heavy, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I think humility is such an important asset in every leader that um, people need to own their messes. People need to just, you know, pre-forgive each other. Um, I'm kind of reflective on your story. Um. 
Yeah, because what has happened is over the years, the training has just gotten to the point to where nurses are empowered and everybody, not just nurses, the, the OR tech, um, the janitor, you know, the, the, the housekeepers, they are all obligated to speak up if they see something is wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know, otherwise, in the workplace, in a situation like that, and you can take that to the mechanic shop. You know, you can take that into any industry and and you'll say, hey, look, these numbers aren't right. If we don't yeah. fix these numbers, yeah. Yeah. that marketing doesn't look like it's going to work in this area. It may have worked That's last right. year. You yeah, know, there, there is a, to your point, there's a new level of transparency, is there not, in organizations, mm-hmm. especially with public organizations, right? As a result of the whole Enron issue and Sarbanes-Oxley right. and the Me Too movement. I think it's a good thing. I think leaders are being held to a higher level of account on their ethics and their behaviors. I, I think trans, you know, I think Dr. Covey said the best disinfectant is light. Mm. It was a great metaphor in organizations. The more light you shine on the dark corners, the more the cockroaches scatter. Right. And I think it's only great for organizations to have a level of, again, I'll say the word transparency, but also vulnerability in their leaders to call out what's going on. You know, one of my dear friends, Rebecca Hessian from Indiana, said something to me that I think is profound. She said, you think they don't know, they do. Mm. And I think that's so ubiquitous in organizations, right? If people know what's going on, they can smell it. They know when the CEO is having an affair or the CFO is cooking the books. People know what's kind of going on. And I think that's a good thing because it's raising the level of accountability, not in politics, but in organizations, to a very healthy level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can just take it to the same idea as a small town. Everybody knows each other, and they all know each other's business. You know? true. So yeah. it's, and, there, and there's some downside to that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, people sure. can be petty, and people can gossip, and people can weaponize information. I always talk about being vulnerable. You know, there are people that will take my, you know, my workplace confessions, if you will, and weaponize them against me. And I, and there'll always be people who will try to bring you down. The vast majority of people, I think, thrive in a high-trust, high-transparent, high-translucent environment. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been in leadership roles where I had, you know, 10 people working for me to 100 and, goodness, I think the highest was like 120 people under my charge. And that was when I was in Iraq. And, you you know, whether you're doing well or you're not not doing well, there's always going to be somebody that's going to take your you know, try to hold something against you. But my thought process has always been that as long as I feel that I'm doing the right thing for the greater good and not for my own um, well-being, then, you know, I should be okay. And it served me well. Uh, So, you know, I know a lot of, and I say that because I was also an equal opportunity advisor to two two two-star generals. And so many people are afraid to say the right thing in fear of reprimand or, they're afraid to call somebody out or they're afraid to discipline somebody in fear of being called a, you know, a sexist or racist or a bigot of some sort when you're fully fine, you know, you, you can make that call, you know, and as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. Right. And every culture is different, right? I mean, it's naive to think that some cultures don't have a retaliatory um, uh, culture. Some do, right? You're not always going to be safe or be protected, but your character your reputation is simply the collection of all your decisions. So you got to live with yourself. And, and I'd much rather be, I'd much rather, unless I'm being naive, I'd rather be true to myself and be transparent and ethical 
and vulnerable than protect or lie or obfuscate. Yeah. Life's too short. Life's too short. Absolutely, 100%. And listen, if you're the one that's out there committing adultery and doing things you know you're not supposed to be doing, then listen, guys, own that and deal with it and move on. Uh, just stop doing it. That's all I got to say about that. Because, <laughs> you know, just save face and, and move on. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many dynamics to leadership and so many different cultures and so many things out there that it's, it just fascinates me. That's why I love having these conversations. But your book, uh, Manage, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. I love that, that last tagline. Absolutely love that. You've already talked a little bit about where this came from, but what have you seen that's good coming out of it? What, you know, what are some good news stories? Oh, man, I, I, I'm so delighted at how well the book has been received. You know, I wrote the book, Wally, because I think the world needed a, one more leadership book, believe it or not, <laughs> that most leadership books are fairly academic. They're kind of aspirational. They're often written by either CEOs or professors, and they're not very relatable. And they also kind of end, end up all wrapped up nice in a bow. Leadership is hard. Leadership is messy. It's unrelenting. It's often unrewarding in the short term. And leadership isn't for everyone. Now, everybody has leadership capability in them. It might be leading a project or leading an initiative, but that does not mean that everyone should be leading a team. Mm -hmm. Not everybody should be leading people. In fact, I'm not quite sure that I should have been leading a people, be leading people. So I wrote this book and kind of, kind of shared a lot of my own stories and messes, some successes as well. They're all, it's all built around 30 challenges that every leader faces in their journey, both in the workplace, Wally, and at home. And the feedback has been phenomenal. The book sold 20,000 copies. I'm on stages around the world now. I think it's because it was relatable. It was real. It was authentic. People could recognize that even as a chief marketing officer, as an executive in a company, in a leadership company, that I just admitted, I got lots of messes. You know, everybody knows that I do. People are talking about them. So why not just own up to them and create a culture where it's safe to talk about your messes, not wallow in them, not you know, license bad behavior, as someone wrote on my Amazon review. I wasn't trying to, to you know, license bad behavior. I was trying to say, you know what, everybody's got messes, including the CEO and the CHRO and the chief people officer and the chief of sales and the receptionist. So it's a great opportunity just to talk about them. When you can talk about your mess as a leader, that means your people that report to you can share with you their fears, their concerns, their frustrations, and then you build a culture of high trust, high accountability, high communication, and that is invaluable. I think while most organizations make the mistake of thinking that their most valuable asset is their pat patents or trademarks or supply chain or their logo or their intellectual property, that's, all, that's not true. All that stuff can be copied and stolen and it does every day of the week. Mm-hmm. A step further, too many organizations have fallen victim to this idea that people are your most valuable asset. That's a lovely statement from HR, but it's not true. What is every organization's most valuable asset, whether you're a small entrepreneur, whether you're a father, a family member, or you're the CEO of a Fortune 50 company, your most valuable asset are the relationships between your people. If Tina and Jim can't get along in accounting, I don't care how smart they are. I don't care if they were Rhodes Scholars. I don't care if they're Black Belt, Master, Salesforce, Sigma people. If they can't get along, 
apologize, forgive, pre-forgive each other, I don't need them because business is only as fast as the level of trust in your organization and the same in your family. If mom and dad aren't getting along, everything comes to a screeching halt. It may not look like it, but emotionally, intellectually, it does. So the relationships between people is every institution, every organization's most valuable asset. Yeah. I never heard it put that way. And that's absolutely, it makes perfect sense. That's why, you know, you hear the stories about, let's say, for instance, two of the, like you're saying, the two top executives, two top sales guys in a, in an organization that just can't get along, then everybody else is, you know, watching this and it's tearing the whole organization apart. And then that looks bad on the leadership. The leadership's like, you can't control these two guys. And bottom line is the whole organization would be better off just by getting rid of both of them if they can't get along and then put well, somebody else right. in that position. Yeah, you're right. And it's, you know, it's obviously not that simple, right? It's no, complicated because mm-hmm. organizations don't want to license bad behavior. They don't want to fire high performers. And they also don't want to be frauds in the eyes of other people by not stepping to the plate and having the high courage conversations and stopping, you know, what's, what's slowing everybody down, which could be the cancer. Mm-hmm. So leaders have got to balance you know, the long-term and short-term, they got to balance high-courage conversations with, you know, considerate respect and diplomacy. But at the end of the day, if you don't tackle the dysfunctional interpersonal relationships, who will quit is not those that are causing it. It's those sitting around it, witnessing it, not being resolved, and they will go move to your competitor. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. They're just not going to put up with it for very long that it's like Especially it's just now, a toxic right? environment. Absolutely. Yeah. There's too, many, I mean, too much people, out there. Exactly. Three, unemployment, three and a half percent. People have got choices mm-hmm. and people will leave. People, like I said before, people don't quit their jobs. They quit their cultures and people will go across the street for four more thousand dollars a year. People will go across the street for a free soda machine if your culture is toxic, which is why I'm so passionate about the role that culture plays in organizations. People will not take a recruiter's call if they love their boss or if they feel like their boss loves them. When you find a leader that's invested in you, you'll put up with a lot of offers or a lot of other crap because you feel like you've got someone's got your back. There's no better feeling in your entire career than liking who you work with and feeling like your leader has your back. Yeah, oh, that's that's a fact. There's no doubt about that. And I've, man, I've dealt with that so many times over my career. And the other thing that I've found, you know, um, I just this is really top of mind for me right now too because I just finished um, listening to the um, Culture Code. Uh, oh yes, I, I interviewed Daniel Coyle a few weeks ago on my podcast. Oh, did you? What He's an amazing. amazing, absolutely amazing, and such great stories in there about uh, I think it's Daniel Meyer um, from I think he was talking about yeah Shake Shack. Um, so many just it just I love the whole idea of just having such a great culture in the organization because you're right this it's all about the relationships. And yeah, that was a great book. Actually, I've listened to it twice now. <laughs> it is. It, it, gosh, we we could talk books for an hour, right? I mean, another yeah. great book is this book, Extreme Ownership, written by those two Navy SEALs, Leif Babin yeah. and Jocko. Jocko, uh, yeah, just yeah, listened that, to that one too. Yeah, I interviewed Leif a few weeks ago. That is an enormously applicable and valuable leadership book. These two guys are, you know, Navy SEALs. They share in each chapter a story about a Baghdadi unrelatable leadership moment life or death 
and they translate the lesson into the workplace in a genius, genius way. I highly recommend extreme ownership to all of your listeners, male, female, regardless of your role. It is it is one of the most applicable, tangible, relatable, inspiring leadership books I've ever read. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about that book because I, I read you know so many leadership and business books, and it, it's a little bit battle heavy for some people but what i like about it is i deal a lot with veterans transitioning and i was like wally how can i how can i translate my active duty role into civilian role i'm like well that's a perfect example because he's taking these just the most extreme example of battle and all of that mess mishaps and uh, blue on blue which are you know Friendly forces firing on each other, just the worst thing that could possibly happen in battle, and then translate that into the executive business levels. It's just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant the way he did that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I've told people I thought they were going to kind of phone in the corporate examples because you know how could two Navy SEALs really know what life's like in an organization? They did a masterful mm-hmm. job of painting what it's like inside of kind of any company. Kudos to them. Yeah, I agree. So, brother, we are at the point of the program where we are going to pay it forward. You ready to do that? I'm ready, sir. Excellent. Share one to three actionable steps that men of abundance can take today. One is stop gossiping. Mm. Dr. Covey, who wrote the Seven Habits book, said, if you want to build trust with those who are present, be loyal to those who are absent. Do not speak about anybody differently when they are away from the dinner table or the office or church than if they were standing right in front of you. That's the first thing. And you will be a culture transition figure in every role in your life. Second, the only apology is the excuse-free apology. If you owe someone an apology, don't burden it with, well, I'm sorry if you were offended, I was really rushed, or that meeting is always kind of, no, 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 no apologies, just no, no excuses. Offer someone an apology that sounds like, I am sorry that I offended you. What I said was inconsiderate. I'm embarrassed. I am sorry. Would you please accept my apology? Just apologize straight up with no baggage and no disclaimers. And the last thing I think is, if you want to be self-aware and you want to really know what your blind spots are, which you have them, everybody has blind spots. Think of the people in your life that are both your supporters and also your detractors. Send them an email and say, you know what? I was listening to Wally's podcast. They had a guest on, a guy who wrote a leadership book about his messes, and he posed three questions to me. And these are the three questions. What's it like to be on a committee with me? What's it like to be in a team with me? What's it like to be in a relationship with me? I'd love your feedback on it. You might take it a step further. Ask your wife or your husband, what's it like to be married to me? Ask your neighbor. Can I ask you a crazy question? What's it like to be my neighbor? Ask your father-in-law. Can I ask you a question? What's it like to have me as your son-in-law? And if you really are humble... And you don't refute it. You don't um, dispute it. You don't try to talk it away. Just listen with the intent to genuinely understand. You will uncover some of your biggest blind spots in the value you might make, the distance you might cover in repairing a broken relationship or an awkward or, or, or interesting situation. 
you will learn a lot about yourself if you can set the conditions for other people to tell you their truth about you. You may not always agree. You might even be insulted. It might not even be accurate because not all feedback is fair, right? They might be telling you feedback about their ex-husband or their former neighbor. So be aware that you might not always choose to accept it, but it's important to hear it. That's my pay it forward. I absolutely love it, man. What, uh, what rituals make the biggest impact in your life, Scott? I think it's going to Mass. I, I'm a lifelong Catholic. I'm raising my three boys Catholic. I've had a phenomenal experience in my parish and my church, and I, I really enjoy going to church. You know, I'm no better or less practicer of my faith. I don't think I'm making any better progress or worse than most people. I believe in my purpose in life. I believe that I was created for a reason. I believe that my life here is to uncover that reason. I'm not sure I 100% know yet, but my ritual of getting up my, my ritual, actually, of starts Saturday evenings. I have three boys, Wally, five, seven, and nine, and we iron their church clothes. We write out our checks the old-fashioned way to tithe in church, and we pack our mints. We pack our um, church books, and church for me starts on Saturday evening, and then I really enjoy taking my boys to Mass. We go out to brunch afterwards, and then once we're done— and for us, you know what? The Sabbath is the Sabbath, and we honor it in the morning. And then I'm very comfortable going out. I'm skiing or playing tennis or mowing the lawn. But my boys know that Sunday we serve the Lord first, and then we do whatever we want to after that. But we dress our best. We behave in church. We honor God's house. We partake in communion. And I hope that doesn't offend any of your guests, but it's a ritual that has guided me well my entire life. It's a gift to me given to me by my parents. By the way, my, way, by the way, my mother is a Methodist. My father is Catholic. And it's a gift given to me by my father and by my grandmother, who was Catholic. But my mother, who's a Methodist, is the one who probably went to church the most consistently. And I watched her write those checks out to the um, tithing account and to the building fund every Saturday night for 18 years when I lived at home. And that created an indelible impression on me. And I'm trying to do the same with my boys. Oh, that's wonderful, man. Um, yeah, I, I always say I grew up heathen. <laughs> I remember going to church and stuff like that. It wasn't big on my dad's schedule. My mom didn't wasn't into it either. But uh, as I married into my wife, which is a very uh, has been Catholic her entire life uh, from Central America, and then I got baptized. And about four years after our court marriage, because we were in another country uh, and revealings and stuff here, I don't think I've shared with the show before uh, with the listeners after 300 and some odd episodes, almost 400 episodes. No, almost 300. But, um, yeah. And then, uh, now at this point I'm third degree, um, Knights of Columbus. Wow. And, congratulations. Well, and I did that because quite frankly, I've, even though I've been Catholic for many years, uh, and go to church and go to mass, it, it there's still questions. And I want to understand my faith much more. So, and I'm retired, and I want to give back to the community much more. So, I figured, what better way to do it than with a group of men who are doing amazing things, and we do just amazing things in the community and abroad, for that matter. The night, but, can I, can I, can, Wally, can I share one quick story with you? Yeah, for sure, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to go fast. My my father, who is 83, was born in Minnesota. His father died when he was 10 of cancer. My father's twin brother caught polio 
when he was 16 years old. And you remember back in the you know 50s, polio was the plague, right? I mean, it was just you didn't go outside for fear of catching polio. My father's twin brother caught polio at the age of 16, and he spent many years in an iron lung. And it was the Knights of Columbus that came to my grandmother and offered to fund the Iron Lung. My grandmother was a widow, and she told the Knights of Columbus, thank you, go next door, they need it worse than me. I'm getting chills telling this story. Mm. My grandmother could not afford to pay for the Iron Lung, but she could afford it a little more than the neighbor. And the Knights of Columbus went next door. I have no idea what that story is, but I, I have such respect for the Knights, their philanthropy, their big hearts, carrying on traditions. The Knights of Columbus saved a lot of people and have helped countless millions across the world. What an honor to know you and what an honor to call you out on your web on your podcast. Thank you for your service to the world. Yeah. I mean that genuinely. I appreciate that. That's literally the first time I've shared that publicly because I'm pretty private yeah. on some some of my stuff that I do philanthropy wise. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. So yeah, um, <laughs> let's get back on track, man. That, that story really, really <laughs> That was a good hard. ending. That it, was it, a great ending. <laughs> yeah, we're not even done yet. I got a couple more questions for you, the important ones um, as well. Um, we already talked about many books, so we'll, we'll jump over that. And we got your book for sure that we're going to have linked up in the show notes. But what do you feel holds most people back from living a life of true abundance? You know, I was on – Rachel Hollis's podcast this year, this week. She wrote this book called um, Girl, Wash Your Face. It sold 4 million copies last year. And only second to Michelle Obama. And this woman is sweeping the country by storm right now, Rachel Hollis. Uh, The book is aimed at women, 20 lies that women tell themselves. But I found the book to be phenomenal. If Gentlemen, if you want to get to know your wife or your daughter, or your mother-in-law, or your sister better, read this book, Girl, Wash Your Face. Change the cover, put whatever cover you want on it, but it's a phenomenal book. Rachel talks about how most people don't fear fear failure. They fear other people seeing them fail. Mm. And I think that is profound, is that um, I think most people fear not failure. They fear the embarrassment of other people calling them out or seeing them stumble. I don't fear that, but mm-hmm. I, I fear sharks, snakes, and alligators. I'm from Florida. I don't fear <laughs> anything else other than I don't fear um, CEOs. I don't fear anything, right? I'm certainly not people. And I don't think I fear having other people see me fail, but I'm not sure I was always that confident, right? I think there was really big insight in what Rachel said. Yeah, absolutely. It has a lot to do with what people, what they're afraid of what other people are going to think. And the bottom line is this, they're not thinking about you at all. Some people may be, but not to the extent that you need to be, that it's going to harm you in any way. Uh, it's, yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm definitely going to get a hold of that book because I can always, even after 28 years of marriage, I can still learn more about this woman. <laughs> well said. It's a great book. It's a girl book. I mean, it's a chick book, right? I mean, and she writes all about, you know, you know Google her. You'll find out how big she is today. But it, this is an extraordinary book to understand um, our better halves. But honestly, I read the book, and it's taught me a lot about myself as well, too. So could not recommend Girl, Wash Your Face anymore. She wrote a follow-up book called Girl, Stop Apologizing. Both of them are phenomenal reads. Excellent, excellent. I'll definitely look that up and have that linked up in the show notes. What does being a man of abundance mean to you, Scott? 
You know, I, I was at um, – I was somewhere recently and I heard someone give a speech at a conference and they said we're all just kind of walking each other home. And I think that's so true is that you've used the word pay it forward so many times. My entire career is the result of people who believed in me, who extended trust to me. Oftentimes when I hadn't earned it or deserved it or had abused it or had violated it. And I'm very mindful of the people that have been transition figures in my life, personally and professionally, that stuck with me, that were loyal to me, that defended me perhaps when I didn't maybe deserve it in the moment, but did maybe in totality. And so I think an abundance mentality is realizing that it's your job to do the same with those coming up behind you. You know, someone once said something to me very wise. His name was Charles. He said, Scott, you'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. And that comes with love, paper clips, money, credit, fame, attention, golf balls, you name it, right? And every aspect of your not of your life, if you haven't defined how much is enough, you're always going to be on a quest for more or robbing it from other people to satisfy yourself. So when I think about the term about, you know, living an abundant life, I think about, you know, where are you in the process of lifting and raising others? And are you giving back? Are you grateful, aware? Are you cognizant of all that people have done for you? Take a moment. Sit down. In my book, I leave a whole page to say, write out the names of people who extended trust to you, who were abundant to you. Write their name down. What impact did that have on you? I wrote down neighbors, high school teachers. I wrote the girl next door who gave me her farmer's market bakery stand when she went off to college. I wrote down all kinds of names. And then the next page, as you probably know from the book, I write down, write down some of the names of people that if you were to be more abundant to or to extend trust to, what could it do for them? Even if they violated your trust in the past, even if they've been scarce with you, which is kind of the opposite of abundance, right, is being scarce or having a scarce mentality, what could that do for them? I think that's how I'd answer that question. Mm, love it. Absolutely love it, man. We are going to close this up. We're going to definitely have your website, managementmess.com. Guys, go there, check that out. But Scott, what did we not talk about that you want to ensure that our abundant leaders get out of our conversation today before I let you go? Oh, we talked about a lot. I'm trying to think of some big lessons that I've learned. Um, you know, I've learned that your job is a career. Your job is not your life. You know, we spend more time at work with our colleagues than we do at home awake with our family and friends so we can get out of balance. So be very, be very deliberate around how you spend your time. Your family is what's most important. Your friends, if you're not married, it's your friends. Relationships are everything. Dr. Covey, who I quote a lot, said something prophetic. He said, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. So I'd say to everybody, reinvest in your relationships. Slow down. Take your time. You know, mow your, lard, mow your yard fast, but take your boys to ice cream slow. Put your phone down and really get to reconnect with the most important people in life because that's all that matters. Hmm. 
Very well said. Thank you for that. Man, great conversation. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, I know that everybody's going to get something huge out of this conversation, brother. Go out, live your life of abundance, and keep paying it forward. You're really making a big difference. So your action step today, guys, is for you to consider what it is to be a leader. What do you see in a leader? Why do you want to be a leader? All of these are very important questions that you need to write down and write the answers to. Look yourself in the mirror and make the decision of what you want to be, why you want to be, and how you are going to be a leader. There's another very important question that needs to be asked, and it's this. Do you even need to be a leader to do what it is that you want to do? Are you right for the leadership position that you want to move into? These are questions only you can answer. But I will tell you this, and I've said this many times before, if you have to tell others that you are a leader, chances are you're not. Ultimately, you don't make that decision. Only the people that are willing to follow you are the ones who make that decision. They're the ones who make the decision that you're the leader. That's my thoughts anyway. But hey, let's have the conversation. Let's continue this conversation in the Facebook group. Go to Facebook, look for Men of Abundance, like the Facebook page. Please do that because that pushes us up on the Facebook search engines. Make some comments on the post there on the Facebook page. Then go request access to the Men of Abundance Facebook group. That's where we can continue this conversation. I'll see you there. Now, go out, live your life of abundance, and make sure to pay it forward. That's all for today, Abundance Leaders. For more about our guests and the powerful information we shared with you today, be sure to sign up for our mailing list at menofabundance.com. We appreciate your time and look forward to hanging out with you on our next episode. So until then, be sure to pay it forward and live your life of abundance.